are you? Thirteen. So am I. I'll be fourteen November twelfth. No kidding! That's my birthday too! From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Don't you feel it? Don't you know what's happening? Don't you find it peculiar that we both look so much alike and have the same birthday? It's just one of those things, isn't it? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and snippets of audio we find all over the world. On the air, on the web, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. God, it's me with a bad haircut. <gasps> My name is Julius, and I'm your twin brother. Oh, obviously. The moment I sat down, I thought I was looking into a mirror. Isn't that peculiar? I've always wondered what it would be like to have an identical twin. I mean, hasn't everyone? To look at someone else and see yourself, but not yourself. A constant companion, best friend, thorn in your side, partner in life, fellow witness to the insanity. Today Today on ReSound, Twins. Twins. One set that's genetically identical but completely different in every other way. One set with totally different genes but identical wardrobes. And a third set separated at birth and unaware of each other's existence until they met in their mid-30s. Stay tuned. No kidding. That's my birthday too. Paula Bernstein and Elise Shine are identical strangers. Separated at birth for a study investigating nature versus nurture and adopted by two different families, the twins were unaware of each other's existence until well into their adulthood. Then, one day, they found each other. My name is Paula Bernstein. I grew up in the you know picture-perfect childhood in a suburban Westchester with really happily married parents. I got married. We had our first child. And really, we were kind of in the nesting stage of our life. And then it was a spring afternoon. I was just rushing in the apartment with my daughter. And I walk in the door, and the phone is ringing. And I look at caller ID, and it said, Louise Wise Services. And I had always known the name of the agency where I was adopted. And, uh, you know, my heart kind of started to beat quickly. And I thought, why would, why would they be calling me after all these years? And the woman on the other end of the line confirmed that I was, in fact, Paula Bernstein, and I was adopted from Louise Wise. And then she said, well, I've got some news for you. I thought I should tell you in case you were walking down Fifth Avenue and ran into someone who looks exactly like you do. And then she said, you've got a twin who's looking for you. And she, at that point, said, I hope I did the right thing in telling you. Are you prepared to hear your twin's name? And I said, yes. And she told me her name, and I thought, I have a twin, and her name is Elise Shine. My name is Elise Shine. I was living in Paris, and Paula was in New York. So, you know, I head off to New York, and we arranged to meet at a um, nearby cafe in the East Village. I was very nervous about what I was wearing, you know, how do you dress to meet your identical twin for the first time? 
Well, I was sitting on the terrace. Um, it was a gorgeous spring day, and I was wearing sunglasses and, you know, nervously chain-smoking. And then, you know, suddenly she saw me. I came over and said, Elise, and she got up, and we kind of gingerly patted each other, which was funny. There was no tearful hug. And then we began to inspect each other. It was like, you know, monkeys in a zoo that we were kind of inspecting each other's bodies. And I remember I said, do you have chubby knees? And I kind of glanced down below the hem of her skirt and saw that her, her knees were quite cute. And I always thought of mine as kind of chubby. So I thought, well, why did she get the cute knees? You know, it was just a natural instinct for us to start comparing. I mean, we sat there through lunch and dinner. We ended up eating two meals there. You know, we had 35 years to catch up on how do you start asking somebody, you know, what have you been up to since we shared a womb together? You know, where do you start? Very soon after Elise and I reunited, I said, do you know why we were separated? And she said, well, the woman at the agency said we were separated for a study on nature versus nurture. The only study of its kind on separated twins from infancy. When the families adopted these children, they were told that their child was already part of an ongoing child study. But of course, they neglected to tell them the key element of the study, which is that it was child development among twins raised in different homes. My name's Lawrence Perlman, and in 1968 to 69, I was a research assistant on. Dr. Peter Neubauer's study of twins reared apart. Apparently, uh, Viola Bernard, who was a very prominent child psychiatrist and a consultant to Louise Wise Services, the adoption agency, had a really strong belief that twins should be raised separately. This idea that twins were often dressed the same and kind of treated exactly the same, she felt interfered with their independent psychological development. So she had mentioned this to Peter Neubauer, who was a very prominent child psychiatrist, and he said, oh, there's a great opportunity to do a research study, and that's how the study was born. And Paul and Elise were newborns, so I had seen them in their foster care. So at that time, they were called Marion and Jean, which I guess were the names that their mother had given them. And these are some notes of the visit that I did when Paul and Elise were 28 days old. <clears throat> Jean tends to be more active than Marion, wakes sooner, cries more lustily and persistently, and is less easily diverted. They seem advanced for their age. They eat heartily and already take solid foods, sleep soundly, and can even be moved about and taken outside without disturbing their sleep. It's hard to look at this and realize that I was this foster child who, for the first five months of my life, really uh, lived with my twin sister. Since the beginning of science, twins have offered a, a unique opportunity to study to what extent nature versus nurture influences the way we develop, the people that we turn out to be. My name is Lawrence Wright, and a few years ago I wrote a book about twin studies that was called Twins. Every other twin study that I'm aware of, especially of identical twins who have been separated at birth, is retrospective. Usually the twins are discovered, you know, oftentimes in the middle of their lives. The Neubauer study differs from all other twin studies in that it looked at the twins at the beginning of their lives, 
They were filmed as they were struggling to their feet the first time. They were filmed as they went out on a bicycle for the first time. Their intelligence was assessed, their personality. All of these things were measured. And no one, neither the twins nor their adoptive parents, realized that they were adopting identical twins separated from each other. From a scientific point of view, it's beautiful. It's practically the perfect study. But this study would never happen today. So the study ended in 1980, and then a year later, New York State began requiring adoption agencies to keep siblings together. And at that point, they realized public opinion would be so against them that they wouldn't dare publish the study. It's kind of disturbing to think that all this material about us is, you know, in some file cabinet somewhere. And really for ourselves, we had to figure out what the true story was. So then we immediately attempted to um, reach Dr. Neubauer and called him, and he refused to speak with us initially. As time passed, he realized that we were persistent enough that we were not going away, and he did grant us kind of an unofficial interview at his house. I think what we wanted was for him to say, at the time, we genuinely thought this was the best thing to do. I'm sorry if we seem to have not anticipated what might happen in separating the twins. And while he showed no ounce of remorse and certainly offered no apology, I think we really had created in our mind this idea that we were meeting Dr. Frankenstein. And in fact, he was rather charming. You know, I almost felt like he was this doting uncle. And by the end, he said, well, you'll have to come back next time for some Viennese pastries. Dr. Peter Neubauer is not only a very distinguished psychiatrist, he's also on the board of the Freud Archives. He's internationally renowned in his field. And yet I think very few people who know Dr. Neubauer are aware of his study. He's rarely spoken to anyone about those studies. The study was only based on a small number of identical twins. I interviewed Dr. Neubauer and I recorded those conversations. How many twins are aware that they're twins and how many are not? For many, many reasons. I don't want to talk about that. Still, I'm wondering, uh, let me try to put it in more concrete terms. If you were to take one twin out of family A and change places with his co-twin in family B, would he be essentially the same person? Well, that's exactly the point, huh? Yeah. I tell you what we have found in each of the areas. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. A very, very high degree of concordance in all areas. If you can support a human being fully, then they can become who they really are. And if we interfere with it, naturally, we never know who they really could have been. This does seem like a, such a significant study. Yes. Has, have there been ethical questions raised about this study? Yeah, there were questions raised by a number of people whether one has a right to separate identical twins or whether one should. It, it is very difficult to answer, but you see, this is for these reasons that these studies don't take place. He was unapologetic about the study. He insisted that at the time it was a matter of scientific consensus that twins were better off being separated at birth and raised separately. 
I never found anything in the literature to support that. Look, I have to run to another meeting. Okay, thanks again for your time. Bye-bye. You know, no such study will ever be done again, nor should it be. But it would be very interesting to learn what this study has to teach us. It's kind of jarring and thrilling to see a carbon copy of the same person. Partially because twins really do force us to question what is it that makes each of us who we are. Since meeting Elise, it's undeniable that genetics play a huge role, probably more than 50%. You know, it's not just our taste in music or books. You know, it goes beyond that. In her, I see the same basic personality. And yet, eventually, we had to realize that we're different people with different life histories. Certainly, we've made very different life choices. I mean, she's married and has children, and I've been traveling a lot, and, you know, I'm still single. You know, it's not as if one of us led the true life, you know, the true outcome of this particular DNA combination. You know, if I were raised by Paula's parents and she were raised by my parents, would I be her? Would she be me? And I think the answer we've decided is no. Elise, when we first met, would talk often about if we had grown up together and she was frustrated by my inability to imagine a shared life. Would it have been like, part of me, I think, felt protective of my old life. You know, as much as I think They did the wrong thing. They should not have separated us. We should have grown up together. And yet I can't go back and imagine my life growing up with Elise. That life never happened. And it is sad that as close as we are now, there's no way we can ever compensate for those 35 years. Me and Paula, it's hard to see where we're going to go. It's really uncharted territory. But... I really love her, and I can't imagine my life without her. Identical Strangers was produced by Joe Richman of Radio Diaries. And wouldn't you know, the story has been optioned by HBO for a possible television show. But just remember, your dear friend Radio told it first. Physically, we're very similar. Unless you know us quite well, you can't tell us apart. And when we were little, we used to speak so fast, no one could understand us apart from each other. And we used to finish each other's sentences. We still do that. I think she, when we were younger, she used to be more serious than me. I, I probably would define myself as the, as the bad twin of the two. My God, it's me with a bad haircut. <gasps> so what does shape us into who we are? As we heard in our last story, identical twins are irresistible to researchers trying to answer this question. But maybe the essence of our selves doesn't come from nature or nurture. Maybe it comes from something less knowable, like our souls. The main characters of our next story are also identical twins. They grew up in the same house, with the same parents, went to the same schools, but then as adults chose to live their lives in fundamentally different ways. The story of Elizabeth and Caroline started for me when I met their mother, Annie. She introduced me to her twin daughters at her home in Oxford, 
where they grew up. These reminiscences of childhood are particularly poignant. Annie's been told she has cancer. Tommy and Laura were lovers. Yeah. He wanted to give her everything. Presents. Flowers, presents, and, and most of all, oh, a wedding. Elizabeth's got a sore throat and a cough. I've got lung cancer. Elizabeth and Caroline now both live in London. Both are married. They each have a son and are expecting their second child. Both daughters. On the face of it, their lives still mirror one another's rather neatly. But there is one thing that separates them completely. Their religious faiths. Elizabeth is a Muslim. And now, what musical taste do you share? <laughs> we don't. I don't listen to conventional music anymore. I listen to the Islamic Nasheed, but they're all talking about Allah, so you wouldn't like it then. That's that. Um, Yusuf Islam, Cat Stevens. You like Cat Stevens? Yes, Cat yeah. Stevens pre. pre, pre, pre yeah, Islam. you do pre and I do post. Oh Allah, send your peace. On your slave, Muhammad. I love being a Muslim, I love every aspect of it. I always used to be ambitious to, with my career and I want more, I want this, I want that. Now I just feel like I want to be better, that's my aim. I want to be a better Muslim. Elizabeth's identical twin sister Caroline is just as devout, but she is a Christian. I became excited about Christianity instinctively, very quickly, because to find something so amazing in your life, to know that you could be forgiven and have a fresh start, if you love other people, you want them to have that. So why such different faiths? What has led them there and how do they work out their differences? I was intrigued. Here, being worked out between identical twin sisters with shared pasts and the shared pain of a dying mother is one of the knottiest issues of our times. In our divided world... Can faiths passionately held ultimately unite us or only divide? And how can we understand the fervour of the convert, Caroline to Christianity and Elizabeth to Islam? And all those who follow him till the coming of the hour. It says in the Quran, um, enter into Islam wholeheartedly. And... Uh, and my sister enters into Christianity wholeheartedly as well, you know. Um, I don't feel there's any point in doing things in a half-hearted manner. So how similar or different would you say that you are from Caroline? Physically, we're very similar. Unless you know us quite well, you can't tell us apart. And when we were little, we used to speak so fast no one could understand us apart from each other. And we used to finish each other's sentences. We still do that. I think she, when we were younger, she used to be more serious than me. I probably would define myself as the, as the bad twin of the two. With Elizabeth, she was a very naughty girl. No, she was a typical teenager. So then when she started to convert to Islam and started to wear hijab, I found that quite difficult because it felt very foreign. Um, it is very foreign. You know, Christianity, even if though I don't share it, is part of our culture. Me and Elizabeth were brought up in a home which was quite middle class, very academic. Um, it was a typical Guardian reading house, I think is fair to say. 
um, a lot of emphasis on intelligence, sort of debating things, and that's the way that my family tended to talk to each other a lot. And Did on you debate religion. No, we didn't. It was completely avoided. I don't remember having any conversations about religion at all. Islam wasn't in the picture, but Elizabeth and Caroline were introduced to Christianity through their Church of England primary school. It was a faith the twins shared initially, and their mother Annie did not. When the girls were small, I was a bit of a surprise to find that they were very interested in things religious. Quite opposed to what you were doing. Yeah, completely. I mean, I have always been agnostic, at least, if not atheist. Um, I found it difficult in the early days. I was being lectured to about Christian morality by my daughters, um, being told I should really believe in Jesus and all this. That was quite odd. Um... And so they were both baptised at the local church. Much to my surprise and much to my husband's dismay, (laughs) he hated it. And I think that was instrumental, probably, in the breakup of our marriage. But I always felt that it was just a phase. I thought it was something that they would go through. And indeed, um, Elizabeth did go through it. She became quite a radical teenager politically and socially and gave up the church. I think when I left Christianity I felt that my sister was very hurt by that. Obviously it was something really central to her life and it did create a distance to a degree. I think it was something we found difficult talking about. Did she ever try to persuade you again? Yeah but I'm as stubborn as she is so that's not going to happen. And then, you know, we went to university and we were more separate. She was basically a hedonist at university. (laughs) Or she certainly wasn't religious at university. And um, it's it's hard work to be a Christian in a world where there are lots of distractions and there's lots of hostility to it. And I think she sort of chose other things above that faith at that time. And it made me very sad. And it still makes me sad that that happened. After I left Christianity, I was women's officer at my college in Cambridge. I was um, active in the feminist movement in the university. I suppose that's kind of where my faith was after I left Christianity. I, I, I met Muslims at university and I was really just arguing with them, friends that I had who were Muslim, maybe not that practising, and we used to argue in the college bar about, about religion. But I remember when I started reading the Quran in order to argue with them better, really, I remember thinking, oh, no, I think this is true. And I wasn't happy with that because I really didn't want it to be true. I didn't want to have that realisation because I knew it would be very difficult in a lot of ways. Um, and it started with quite a conflictual relationship with Islam as probably is common for a lot of, especially women in the West. If there was a religion that treated women in a bad way, then I couldn't, I couldn't go any further in, into it. And doesn't Islam treat women unfairly? Well, I believe exactly the opposite, um, I will not be an apologist for how certain cultures practice their religion. You know, I I could sit here and pretending everything's great for Muslim women around the world, and it's not true, just as it's not true in some African cultures for Christian women. And I know many Muslim women from all around the world who've suffered oppression and difficulty, but I, I also know that they would say it was not Islam, it was their families, it was their culture. 
And when I looked at um, the, it's the early Islamic texts, and I looked at the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, Prophet Muhammad, and how he lived his life, and how women were empowered in his society, it just seemed to make a lot more sense to me. And, and I think that allowed me to be curious about the religion itself. She told me she'd become Muslim in a letter because she was scared. No, I don't know why. Maybe because it was an easier way of telling me. In a way, I was really relieved that she'd started to look for God again. And I did find that she, she was much more respectful towards my faith when she became Muslim. But I also recognised that actually, by becoming a Muslim, she'd actively rejected Christianity. So have you lost a twin? No, not at all. She's still my twin. She just wears a headscarf. You could have knocked me over with a feather, as they say, when Elizabeth started to wear the hijab. It was hard to see, this is my daughter, this is how she is now. I really like it when she comes home and starts taking it all off. And then, ah, yes, there she is, there's Elizabeth. When I'm out... I wear a hijab and I wear, I choose to also wear a jilbab, which is like a, a long coat or a long dress. This one's buttoned up because it just happens to be easier and the one that I have next to my pushchair currently. <laughs> but um, if I was to go out without it on, I'd feel like I was going out in my underwear. And it's actually really empowering as well because in this society, women are constantly judged by how they look whether they're a size 10 or a size 14. And you haven't got a clue whether I'm a size 10 or a size 14. The first time I got shouted at was September 12, 2001. I mean, that's the first time it was you what bombed America, go back to your own country. So if I had somewhere else to go, I might consider it, but <laughs> this is the only place I've got. Pre-September 11, um, people treated me like I was stupid. I mean, they just, they'd slow down their speech. <laughs> assume I don't speak English and I'm pretty uneducated. Um, and that was slightly annoying, but quite amusing. Um, but now I feel, when I walk down the street, often hated and feared. And that's much worse. Um, since then, I've been called a packy a number of times, can't even count how many times. White packy, which is quite a funny version. Um, Iraqi, Afghani, I've been spat at, I've been pushed, I've been near driven off the road with my bicycle. Um, I've had my children insulted. I've been with my friend when her disabled three-year-old was spat at in a wheelchair. And this, you know, that this behaviour makes you feel constantly on edge. You know, it does affect how you live your life. You can't, you, you're careful about where you go and when you go out. You don't go out in the city centres in the evening. None of my friends do. It doesn't matter how confident and assertive you are, you don't want to spend your evening being insulted, so you don't go past pubs at night. You don't go out when the football is, when England's playing at football, especially if they're losing. You, you know, you, you change your lifestyle, you change your children's lifestyle, and that's a shame. Particularly when Caroline and her children can walk down the street unnoticed although the cousins are all closer than appearances suggest. 50% of their genetic material is almost the same, so they're almost like half-siblings, genetically. Although they sort of look dramatically different at the moment. Stephen is very blonde and pale, and Ali's quite dark. 
So they look really different, but they've got quite similar personalities. So, And you're expecting a daughter as well? They think she's a daughter. I'll find out in four or five weeks. But presumably you're hoping that your mother will see your daughter. Yeah, I mean, I'd sort of, all through my pregnancy, I'd assumed that my mum wouldn't see my second child born. So I'm still, even though it's only a few weeks away, I'm still... I felt under pressure to give birth now and make everything okay. Health-wise, I'm at the end of any medical intervention. The cancer is now terminal. And I don't really know enough about Islam to know how Elizabeth would see my imminent death. But I know that for Caroline it's very difficult knowing that I don't share her faith. Are you tempted by a faith at all at this stage in your life? No, I think it would be a complete cop-out at this stage. Have you thought about the question of your funeral? Yes, I have thought about my funeral. I mean, it's going to be complicated because obviously we've got to create something that will suit the Muslims, the Christians and the agnostics, which is going to be a good trick. And if I do it, I think I'll patent it. (laughs) And the girls will be able to make lots of money. I hope you don't mind me asking this. Will you see your two granddaughters? I may. I might. I'm hoping. Probably Elizabeth is um, delivered early, so I should probably see her little girl. Um, Caroline's not so sure. It's been a long time since my mum was first diagnosed with lung cancer. You know, one week you get really good news and the next week you get really bad news and each week you wonder, when the phone goes, what it is. Um, So that's very demanding and I don't know how I'd have coped with that if I wasn't a Christian because I've had this um, certainty in my life of who God is and that he loves me and that he's going to look after me. Um... And that's allowed me to just sort of carry on. Islam is always talking about the fact that our time is limited. I'm sure it's the same for my sister, but for me, my religious belief helps me to deal with it. And it's a kind of shared pain and a shared fear and a shared anxiety. But our perspectives are different. As Muslims, we don't say anyone is saved. I don't say I'm going to heaven just because I wear hijab and pray five times a day. Only what's in my heart is between me and my creator, and only Allah knows what's in my heart. And that's the same for everyone. And on the day of judgment, God will judge people, and he is just. I believe that, as a Christian, um, I will go to heaven, and I want that for my mum. And I'm not saying I think she necessarily won't, but I don't know. I have that uncertainty and I don't have that security. And um, that's really hard. Death certainly focuses the issues, most of which have never needed to be discussed. There are stark differences of opinion and belief, and not just about the afterlife and whether or not we can know we will go to heaven. 
the heart of both Elizabeth's Muslim faith and Caroline's Christianity, is unavoidably exclusive. There is sometimes a sense in when you talk to people about interreligious dialogue that it's about us sort of trying to find some common ground that we all agree with. But I think as grown-ups we can disagree violently without being violent, you know. And me and my sister disagree absolutely on a lot of fundamentals of our faith. Um, when she came to my wedding, it was really great that she came. She came to church and, and she stood up during the songs, but most of the songs that were anything about Jesus she couldn't sing any line of. Now, those were the songs that I'd chosen that were fundamental, that said, said what I believed. As a Muslim, I feel that my way is the right way. If I thought that you could get as close to your creator through going to church once a week, I would do that, because trust me, wearing hijab is difficult, you know? And, and it's difficult to get up at dawn every day, and it's difficult to only eat halal and to fast in Ramadan. These are difficult things, but we do them, obviously, because we think they're the right way, and they're the best way for us to come close to God. So would you go f as far as to say your sister's on the wrong path? I would prefer her to be a Muslim. And I think she would find more peace and more closest to God through being a Muslim than being a Christian. I would say that, yes. And Christianity's wrong? Christianity has some fundamental errors. I doesn't mean that Christians are bad people. Um, but, yes, I believe that the concept of the Trinity is wrong. I believe in, in what we call as Muslims Tawheed, in the unity of God, that there's only one God. And worshipping Jesus is not something that we find helpful it's not helpful or it's wrong it's it's wrong to worship jesus yes jesus is uh, is a prophet to me and we respect him peace be upon him like we respect all the prophets but he's not god i do fundamentally believe that christianity sets you free and i think it sets you free because it's the truth if the truth sets you free then i think believing things which are not the truth do the opposite of course i don't want that for my sister because I love so she's sister. wrong? Yeah, no, I think she's wrong, yeah. I think she's been lied to, and I think she believes something which is a lie. Christianity teaches that God has already made it better between you and God, and that you can accept that by, that by dying for you, that Jesus has paid for all the rubbish stuff that you did, and actually it's not about trying to fit in with rules anymore. And Jesus had to die in order for me to be forgiven. I strongly disagree with that. I, 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 that's my, that would summarise my problem with Christianity, really. Um, we come to Allah on our own path through our actions um, and through our faith, and our faith is shown through our actions. Um, and we come to Allah not through anyone, not through the intercession of the Prophet or any good people, and certainly not through God having a son. We are fundamentally divided about religion, me and my sister, and that's a real division. Like, we've talked about who we'd put in our will to look after our children, and we said we wouldn't ask the other person to. And that's really hard, because I'd love Elizabeth to look after Stephen if I died. Um, because she's a lovely mum, she's a great mum, but she would not bring him up as a Christian even if I asked her to, and I know she wouldn't, and she knows I would do exactly the same thing with Ali, because how can I bring him up as a Muslim when I don't believe it's true? How do you feel about a granddaughter being brought up as a Muslim? <laughs> I do have problems, and I suppose that's 
showing a prejudice that distresses me to have to admit to. But um, little girls are so sweet, and to see their little faces covered in a veil, it's just... just seems very sad. When my mum said to me, oh, you know, having a daughter, she worried that she doesn't want Hannah wearing hijab. I, I should have challenged that, but I didn't. I didn't feel able to challenge that. And so I said, mum, you know I'm going to be a very good mother. Which she agrees with, but that's not what she was saying. I feel my faith is misunderstood and it upsets me. It's, it's difficult ground and it's potentially dangerous ground. It's things half said. Elizabeth and her husband Mohammed's daughter Hannah was born in August 2008 and a few weeks later came Naomi, Caroline and Richard's daughter. I hadn't seen Annie for a couple of months and wanted to catch up. I noticed something different when we arranged to meet, but I wasn't expecting this. Tell me about your granddaughters. Mm. You used the word grace to me on the phone. It was a grace to see them. Well, because I felt that it was so unexpected and unlikely, I felt that there was someone somewhere who was looking after us because that was the one thing that I'd really, really hoped for um, and, and prayed for. So you said someone looking after you and you'd prayed for it. Is that something different? When we last spoke, you'd sort of always been an atheist. You weren't sure whether you were mm. perhaps agnostic. Has there been... Yes, there's been a bit of a turnaround since then. Um, I mean, I had the absolutely classic revelation, I suppose. I was walking down the road on my own, beautiful, sunny, autumn, winter day. And I suddenly realised that there was... I could only call it God all around me. There was a spiritual presence. Now, I haven't gone much beyond that. I still don't really think I'm a Christian. But I've certainly come to a belief in something more and something greater than us. I mean, you used the word cop-out last time. It would be a cop-out if I <laughs> began believing in something now. Hmm. I've always taken the view that people who find religion just on death's door are cynically manipulating the system. I was totally closed. Totally closed. It didn't even seem at the time like a way out doesn't seem like a way out at all. Um, it just, it just happened. So far, I haven't had the strength even to tell Elizabeth. I've talked very briefly to Caroline about it because I knew that it would mean so much to her. It's lovely to have got there just in time, uh, and I feel it is just in time. There's not much longer now. She sneaked up to me when I was trying to change Naomi's nappy. She said, oh, I did want to talk to you quietly. She said, I think I found God. Could you ever have imagined that this was going to happen at this stage? 
on a human level, I found it very difficult to imagine it happening, but I also found it very hard to imagine dealing with mum having a death without any kind of faith or any kind of openness to God. You know, of course, I'd like her to say to me, I'm now a Christian, but really the most important thing to me is that she can say to me, I, I've met God. And, and it was just really before mum's memory and things started to get really affected. So it happened at a time when I can say to myself confidently that my mum had all her faculties about her when she met God. And that wasn't a trick that the cancer was playing on her brain or, you know, it was fully her meeting him. Did it concern you at all that she told you quite a while before she told Elizabeth? It was an anxiety to me and I felt nervous until Elizabeth knew as well. Well, she said, the first thing she said was, I think I found religion. And, I, and, I, and my thought was, oh God, which one? <laughs> Please don't be something really strange. <laughs> yeah, and I was really, really happy about that. Um, my feeling was don't feel the need to label that anything. You know, that's about your relationship with God. You know, and I think it's a, a stage on the path, isn't it? To me, it's, it's, it's part of the journey. She turned a corner in, a, in the road and she's seen the end of the road more clearly. And very early on in this journey, it may be that as I examine more than talking to you actually clarifies a lot of the things that I'd like to talk to them about. Will it be easier now to discuss religion? Yes. It has been very difficult to broach religious or even moral issues because I feel that we're coming from different perspectives. And I, I think I will really relish the opportunity to change that. And I think this is a God-given opportunity to actually start opening those issues up for discussion. The chance came at the end of December 2008, when I joined the whole family for a joint festival celebration, which they call Eidmas. For the first time, there was a frank, open discussion between the three of them, Caroline, Elizabeth and Annie. I mean, some things I don't think we need to debate. Like, I wouldn't necessarily want to debate no, with you no, about think... who's right about Jesus, because I know I'm right, yeah. and you know and I know I'm right. right. And um, still from a human perspective, that doesn't mean it's right okay. Yeah. <laughs> In a way, for me, it should be the most significant day of my life, almost. You know, it's the first Christian Christmas that I've ever had, but it doesn't somehow feel like that. What's important is just to have the family together again and to have all these little ones around us. It's actually quite nice to have a chance to discuss. Yeah. And I think we should more. Um, and to discuss it with you is wonderful, Mum, because yeah. we don't do that. And I hate the fact that we don't do that because for both of you... I think it's a couple of months since we last spoke and we've gone through the heavy snowfall it's hopefully coming towards the end of winter now uh, Hannah is now over five months old but my mum's quality of life has also gone down 
um, she's in a lot more discomfort, she's more distressed, and she's quite been quite low, and it's very hard to see that. I have absolutely no question in my mind that uh, there's something more. The fact that there is more to life than just this current moment here, I'm completely clear. And I feel that I still got time to explore things that I want to explore. But I'm very aware that that is coming to an end. And that my time with the girls in particular uh, is pretty short now. Annie died on the 15th of March 2009, leaving behind her two daughters and four grandchildren. And it's here, in the next generation, that this experience of identical twins choosing and pursuing very different faiths will be worked out finally. Consequences repeated beyond the immediate circles of either Caroline or Elizabeth. My children are going to be very different. Their identity is both British and Pakistani, but primarily they'll be brought up as, as Muslims. That's a new identity that we're forming as British Muslims. But we've got a great deal of hostility towards Islam in the West. I, I do worry that that, that trend will continue in, in the younger generation. In the future, I guess, in a way, our children will have more in common with each other than they have with lots of other people around them. And then, having said that, there will be a, a sort of line, if our children both follow our faiths, that will separate them as well. You know, at some point, um, Stephen will ask me why his auntie wears a scarf. But at least he'll have asked why and been thinking about that from early on. So it won't be sort of a new thing for him. And I think that's going to be something that's the same for many of the next generation. So hopefully they'll find it easier to just be straightforward about it and straightforward about the differences and not mystified by them. You know, we have a country that is a multicultural country and I think there will be more converts to Islam as well. But I think if we can find a place where we ourselves feel at peace with where we are with God, we can find it easier to talk and to understand the other people's faiths. Um, it's, it's how it is in this country and we need to make it work. Twin Sisters, Two Faiths was presented by Anna Scott Brown and produced by Adam Fowler and Anna Scott Brown. It was a Ladbroke radio production and originally aired on BBC Radio 4. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. You listen to what we have to say every week. Now it's our turn to listen to you. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And if I'm out to the store, I know how sometime at a deli they'll have samples. If she's not there with me to have a sample, I won't take it. I have to have her with me. Isn't that peculiar? The odds of being born an identical twin are pretty small, about 
0.04%. But that did not stop the sisters in our next story. What biology didn't grant them, they took for themselves. Here's matching outfits not included. Back when Dusty and Honey were in their early 20s, not long after World War II, they were shopping in a store called Learners. They were looking for clothes on opposite sides of a circular rack and found that they'd both picked the same outfit, a green corduroy two-piece sports suit. They left the store dressed identically and have been dressing alike ever since. Right now I got on what I call my fatigue outfit because I did my uh, exercise. I got a pair of brown shorts and a white. What I get to? Someone sent this to Oh, from Cape Cod. And honey, what are you wearing? I'm wearing the same thing Dusty's with the um, brown shorts and the Cape Cod t-shirt. People say, why yet? Well, we have the same taste in clothes. So if I like the same thing she has, I, I want it, you know? So we both wear it. And we're in the same clothes to like all the time. I can't say, well, she's wearing my skirt or she's wearing my blouse because it'll be the same thing. We're happy to dress in alike. Dusty and Honey are sisters in their early 70s. They've lived together all their lives, mostly in Westport, Connecticut. They have the same wigs, the same eyeglasses, the same jewelry and purses. But Dusty and Honey aren't twins. Dusty is three years older than Honey. Their bedroom has two twin beds piled with matching stuffed animals. Above each bed is a crucifix. And above those, centered in the middle, staring down, is a framed picture of Frank Sinatra. Not only do Dusty and Honey eat the same food, but they make sure that one never has a larger portion than the other, and one will only have a treat if the other is there to share it with her. And if I'm out to the store, I know how sometime at a deli they'll have um, samples. If she's not there with me to have a sample, I won't take it. I have to have her with me. I'll go get a desk when there's a sample there, but I won't take it and not let her have it. That sounds strange to some people, but that's the way we are, and you can't, you just can't change us. But it works out fine, and as long as we like, we say we're not hurting anybody. Some people go, oh, it's a, we're not hurting anyone, I'm not breaking a commandment. And that's the main thing, you know. There's a kind of closeness between little girls who are best friends, where it makes you feel secure and safe to think that there's someone who shares all the same likes and dislikes. All you want is to do everything together. Dusty and Honey have somehow managed to carry that kind of friendship into adulthood. They're like the girls who write, best friends forever on the bathroom wall. Except for them, the forever part is real. It can feel sort of strange visiting them in their house, two matching women sitting on matching easy chairs in their living room, completing each other's sentences. Even in their jobs, they've been together. First a sweatshop, then an elderly home. For 30 years, they worked as housekeepers for a local priest. Is it ever hard to feel like you're a separate person? A separate person? Yeah, I mean, you, you do everything together, mm -hmm. right? And, and you dress the same. And do you ever feel like um, you want to feel like 
just an individual. Yeah. If I do that, I think I'm hurting her. I'd say, like, I don't love her anymore. I don't want to do anything, like, with her. I couldn't do that. They said, why don't you dress differently than your sister, too? No, then I'll hurt her. I feel like I don't love her anymore, and I I couldn't do that to her. That would, like, be be betraying her. They know their relationship is unusual, but when I ask them why it turned out this way, they just say over and over that this is what was meant to be, and this is what makes them happy. They learn to depend on each other as little girls, growing up during the Depression, the youngest of six children, often going to bed hungry and cold. Their father died when Honey was two and Dusty was five. Dusty was always sort of fragile. For a long time, whenever Dusty and Honey went out, Honey found herself doing everything for Dusty because Dusty was too shy to do things herself. Dusty and Honey lived at home through their early 30s and cared for their ailing mother. They watched their older siblings get married one by one. And every time they got married, we had, we called them, them was the living room and it had a, a door that went right out to the hallway. And they used to go out that way with their gowns. So after they got married, my mother sealed that door up. I said, Ma, is that you're trying to tell us something? We're never going to get married and go out that door? Because she sealed that door up after the last Louise got married. Do you think your mother wanted you to get married? No, no. I can't say like some mothers, when you're going to get married. She never pressured us into that. Never, never. No. I guess you knew we were meant to be to stay with one another, you know? It was just something, I guess, it's in the books. You know, nothing you could do about that. Do you think in some ways that this relationship is uh, less complicated than married couples? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so, because we understand one another and one doesn't try to hurt the other one or lie or cheat. That's a pretty bleak view of marriage. It turns out that much of Dusty and Honey's information about marriage comes from soap operas. For as long as they can remember, they've been either listening to soaps on the radio or watching them on television. People say they're still, but we enjoy them. I kind of God, thank God I don't live half of the lives they live, you know? It's interesting because um, your lives seem to be very controlled and yeah, common on, yeah. on the soap <laughs> operas. They're yeah, very turbulent. So you watch all that thing, you're so quiet. You t- Well, that's how we get our kicks out of life, you know, watching this. I mean, we wouldn't know the facts of life if we didn't see TV, you know, because <laughs> my mother didn't tell us anything, you know. You bought a baby. You didn't have a baby. You bought a baby, you know. They describe themselves as young at heart, and I think that's a fair description. Their nieces have helped them keep up with teeny bopper culture, Britney Spears and NSYNC, and all the others. We like the way Ricky Martin moves, oh, he could do nice, you know. I wouldn't mind going out with him, we always say, you know, I was only 20 years younger, you know. Dusty puts her hands up mambo style and does a little shake for me, a la Ricky Martin.
Every night, Dusty and Honey lay in their twin beds and talk before they fall asleep about what they're going to do the next day and what they'll wear and whether it'll be too cold for their Bermudas, like best friends on a sleepover that never ends, with all the excitement that they'll get to spend the next day together. Like any two people who've lived together for decades, live together happily, what frightens them most is the thought that one of them will die before the other. I don't think I would last too long. No. I'd be a basket case. I don't think I would want to move out of the house. When she was in the hospital, I, would, I didn't want to eat or sleep or anything. Do you feel like when one of you's in the hospital, it's like having a part of you missing? Oh, oh yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Oh, yeah. I would just sit in my chair and cry and couldn't wait to go see her, spend most of the time with her. And that's how she was when I was in the hospital. Everybody says, your sister looks terrible. I said, well, until we're together, you know, because once we're separated, it's very bad. We always tell our family, when one goes, keep the coffin all open because the other one's going to go right ahead after and just throw her in, <laughs> bury us together, you know, in one coffin will save money because I don't think we can survive without each other. If we do, we're going to be basket cases. I can imagine how comforting it is. For all of us who are in more conventional relationships, we don't really have that kind of assurance that our partner will always be with us and always agree and everything will always be the same. Matching Outfits Not Included was produced by Hilary Frank. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.